0: Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but uh, I really, really enjoy cutting and splitting wood. My, My children think I have a disease. When I was a little boy, growing up in central New York in 1972, I was born in 1966. In 1972, my dad, when the oil embargo hit and the prices went so high, my dad said, that's it, we're not burning oil anymore. We're gonna heat this home with wood. And this is a two-story, really large ranch house. And we had a wood stove at one end, and my bedroom was all the way at the other end, over the garages with hardwood floors. I would wake up in the morning, I could see my breath pluming out mist in the mornings of the winters. So we got used to cutting wood. And every year we split and we cut around 60 cord of wood. Now some of you are going, That's, there's no way. We cut with another person who, it was his land, and between his house and our house, we burned about 60 cord a year. Now, I like cutting wood, and I like splitting wood, but if, you, if you're paying attention, you notice I didn't say I like stacking wood. I don't really like doing that. And my dad, every year, we couldn't stack the wood near the house because that would bring mice into the house, so we had to stack the wood far enough away from the house where that wouldn't be a problem, except where I grew up, it's all pretty hilly. And so I remember my father, it seemed like every year would stack the wood in a different place. One year he stacked the wood, he had us all doing it. Between one tree and another, he put down pallets and we stacked the wood. And and the trees were the ends of the stacks so that they would kind of form a, uh, a sort of a buttress for them. And I thought, well, that's kind of a good idea. The ground's going down, but at least the, they're wedged. All this wood, probably about 18 cord, wedged between these two trees. And that was a great idea until the winter storms hit and trees move. And the swaying trees, it wasn't very long before it, all of that wood fell down. It took us days to stack it, and it just fell down. Listen, it's really important what we build on. And storms in life can do this. When a storm comes, how secure is your life? Well, it's not going to be very secure unless you've built on a firm foundation. So let me rewind you to last week, and let's get a running start for this week. This is the third week in this mini-series in Luke 6. It's a sermon that Jesus preached. We're still in the greatest job on earth. It's a job called discipleship. But yet, he's teaching disciples, his disciples, how to love, and if you remember from two, uh, actually, it was three weeks ago, because we had a break for Orphan Sunday weekend, but three weeks ago, we learned that we've gotta have a persuasive love. Listen, if you're following Christ, and you're one of his disciples, then he is commanding us To love our enemies. That is very, very difficult to do, yet it is persuasive to the world around us. And we've got to learn to have what we saw last week, a merciful love. A love of mercy, full of mercy, refusing to become judgmental, willing to drop the charges of those who hurt us. And then we learned that we've got to have not only a persuasive and a merciful love, but we've got to have a discerning love. And that discerning love is able to see our sins more clearly than other people's sins. Now listen, the norm is the opposite. The norm is that I can see your sins more clearly than my sins. We've got self-blindness, all of us. And we've got to be able to have our eyes opened up. But then the Lord moves to the next bead. Now, I say bead because if you remember from last week, I said that the Jewish rabbis would teach preachers what was called the karaz. The kharaz means literally stringing beads. you got a bead here, a bead here, and there was a string that unified them. The unifying theme in this whole sermon is discipleship. But he's moving, now if you're, if you're reading this sermon, he's moving from issue to issue, topic to, topic to topic, and yet all of it is tied together with this discipleship theme. And so we move to the next bead, and what we learn and what Jesus is about to teach us is that we need to have a wholehearted love. A wholehearted love. Now, let's, let's get as honest with ourselves as we can. So I want you to look at me for just a second, and now listen, deliberate with your own heart because I can't answer this for you and it's not my place to do that. And neither is it your place to answer it for me. How wholeheartedly Do you love God? And how wholeheartedly do you love people? Now don't be too quick to say that you're heart, because I'm gonna tell you that's not true. Or else you're now a perfect, gloriously redeemed being. God is helping us to love more wholeheartedly. Now listen, here's the part I want you to hear, you ready? In order for disciple-making to be effective, then that love must proceed from a healthy heart. In other words, let me tell you this. Unless your heart is becoming healthier by the power of the gospel, then you cannot love to a degree that it will be effective in disciple-making. And we're about to see that. The way the heart is made healthy. Look at verse 42 is for the logs in our own eyes to be removed. You remember, chaff is that little piece of straw that gets in your eye, and irritant, but log was the main beam of your home. We've got logs in our eyes, and yet we make logs out of other people's chaff. Jesus said, no, listen, you've got the logs in your eyes, and they got to get removed so that you can see clearly. But we've got a problem. I'm going to take you to a journey into the heart from the Old Testament. And let's go to Jeremiah 17, 9, and I want to teach you about this verse, and then we'll come back to the words of Jesus in this sermon. We've got a problem, and Jeremiah teaches us this problem, and we all have it. Now, you've got to pay attention to this because this is a universal handicap. and We need the gospel to help us overcome that. Here's what Jeremiah seventeen nine says, "...the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick." Who can understand it? Now, we are to discern our hearts. We are to judge our hearts, meaning to distinguish. This is what the word judge means, to distinguish between good and evil. We've got to be able to see in our hearts and see what is good that has been made good by the power and the grace of God. And we've got to have the courage and the ability to see what is evil in our hearts and plead for God's grace so we've got to judge our hearts we got to get out these logs so that we can love people well and help them then get the sins out of their lives and present them mature before Christ but our hearts are difficult to really see accurately we've got a problem Here it is again. Jeremiah says, the heart, that's mine, that's yours, is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. So who can understand it? Who can see it clearly? Well, this word deceitful is really where I want to go in this. And that word had two main meanings. Are you ready? The the Old Testament translated from Hebrew. The New Testament's translated mostly from Greek. A little bit of Aramaic. This is Hebrew language we're talking about, and this word translated "deceitful" in English comes from a from a Hebrew word that had two main meanings. And here they are. the fir- The first one was this, and if you're a hunter, you're going to like this. It means footprinted. It was used by a hunter when he was tracking his prey, but then he lost. The footprints of the prey that he was tracking in the midst of all the other footprints and the softened dirt or mud. So you're tracking your deer, for example, and you can see it clearly. Then all of a sudden you get to a watering hole and the ground is soft, it's muddy, and and you can't see yours anymore because there's too many crisscrossing footprints. And this would be the word that the hunter would use. It was deceitful, many tracked or many footprinted. And the meaning is this, Jeremiah is saying, listen, you begin to look down into your heart and all of a sudden this this footprinted fog of obscurity is too thick. You can't really see your own motives clearly. Listen, if you tell me, Pastor Tim, I know the motives of my heart, I'm gonna tell you, hold them suspect. Because we don't see our hearts with crystal clarity. And we need a help from the Lord to do it. But there's a second meaning of this word deceitful. And it's this steep and hilly. This one's not used by hunters. This one was used by road builders. And they would get to a hill. And all of a sudden you can't get those wagons straight up the hill. You've got to begin to create in your road what are called we're all familiar with them switchbacks. And when you come to a switchback you can't see what's around the corner. And again, we've got the same theme, the same motif. You can't see what's at the bottom of your heart clearly. We need help. The reason that we cannot see them clearly, our hearts, because we've got these log jams called sins. They've got to get taken out, and God begins to take them out one log at a time usually and the more the logs get out of the eyes of our hearts the more light that can come in and your vision is predicated or your vision is necessitated by light being able to come into your eyes you get the logs out the light can come in you can see you more clearly you can see others more clearly and what's going to result is all of a sudden wholehearted love So how do we see our hearts clearly in order to judge and discern what is good and evil in our hearts? How do, we, how do we get these logs out? How do we get the light in so that we can discern between what's good in our hearts and what's evil? If all you see in your heart, Christian brother and sister, is evil, then you don't know the gospel of grace. And if all that you see in your heart is good, brother and sister, you don't know the power of your sin. You've got to get the gospel. And the gospel has bad news and it's built on good news. The bad news is so bad because the good news is so good. And you can reverse that equally. So how do we see our hearts clearly? Well, here we go. Back in in the sermon of Jesus, verse 43. For no good tree. Now, let's stop there for a second. I'm going to teach you to be students of the word, okay? When you see the word for... You gotta see what went on before it, or what was there before it. For is a definite article, meaning that it's hanging on what was just before it. So when you see the word for, you gotta go back and you gotta review, which I already did with you. For no good tree, here's stringing beads, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, Christ is about to make his point, and here's his point. He's going to say it in the next verse, but here's his point. Just as you and I can tell the type and the condition of a tree by the type and the quality of its fruit, we could do the same. Now, listen, we could do the same with our own spiritual hearts, especially when we examine what's coming out of our mouths. That's what the point is he's going to make. So listen, how do we clearly discern our hearts when they're deceitful? Well, you begin to look what's coming out of your mouth will show you exactly what's inside your heart. If you want wholehearted living, you begin to grab the words that come out and you begin to plead for grace or claim grace. If they're good, you claim grace. If they're bad, you plead for it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, now I got to tell you something about him. Behind Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones is my favorite preacher. I think he is one of the, I think Spurgeon and then Jones were the two greatest preachers that England ever produced. And his wife related a story about a man from Wales whose speech was so filthy... And so foul mouthed that no one could even stand to drink with him at the pub. And after meeting with Christ, this foul mouthed man, after meeting with Christ, he tried to stop swearing, but he couldn't do it. And even one morning, shouted to his wife, I can't find my blankety socks. Where are the blankety things? Just foul mouthed coming out to his wife, yet he had just met Christ and he could not. Stop swearing. And as his words echoed that he had just made to his wife, he fell back on his bed, true story, fell back on his bed and he cried out these words, Oh Lord, cleanse my tongue. Lord, I can't even ask for a pair of socks without swearing. Please have mercy on me and give me a clean tongue. Something happened that day, that moment. That everybody that knew this man bore witness of. Not once, never again, did any foul or blasphemous word ever come from that man's lips. It's the power of the gospel. Listen, if there's good coming out of your mouth, you give glory and honor to God because it's only by his grace. He's done a work in your heart. He put good things in and good things are coming out in your speech. But listen, if you've got a problem with your mouth, if you've got gossip, if you've got slander, if you've got depraved sexual talk and coarse joking, listen, then you plead for grace because one of those logs got to get out. It's jammed in there and it's going to take the gospel to do it. See for most of us, the problem is not so embarrassingly obvious. Nor is it so dramatically stopped. And it might not be swearing. It might not be crude language. It could be gossip, critical tongues, slander, even stretching the truth. Those white lies are heinous before God. It could be outright lying. It could be negativity or any other number of tongue sins. But the truth is, listen, if there's no outer change, there hasn't yet been inner change. And if there's transformation of your heart, it will be obvious and the fruit that you grow will come out of your mouth. And it will bless God and people. And whether it's slow or immediate, or slow or gradual or immediate and drastic, sometimes both, there's going to be transformation, listen, in the life of every true disciple of Jesus. Now notice with me verse 45, exactly how Jesus phrases this because he carefully selects certain words. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart. Why are we talking about the heart so much? Because this is where Jesus is going. Out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. How many here have ever used a thesaurus? which is a book of synonyms and antonyms. If you use a thesaurus, raise your hand. Okay, so I want you to remember this. See that word treasure? That's the Greek word thesaurus. Interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating to me. Because the word thesaurus in our English vocabulary means warehouse or treasury, and it's here that it's used for the word treasure. Christ is speaking about the thesaurus of your heart, the warehouse, the vault of your heart. It's a noun, so think of the heart as a vault into which are made deposits each and every day. Listen, you're making deposits into your heart every single day, whether you're aware of going to the bank teller of your heart or not, you're depositing. Now, whether you're depositing good or depositing evil, whether you're allowing others to deposit good or evil, that's where you've got to discern that takes the grace of God to do that. But you're making deposits. And when we speak, listen, when we speak, we're cashing checks. And those checks that we're cashing are either blessing or cursing. They're either good or evil. They're either building others up or bringing others down. They're either honoring God or dishonoring God. Listen, you cash checks every time you speak, as do I, and you have to discern whether those checks are good or bad. And they're coming from a heart of the same. There is no truer evidence of what is in our hearts than what we say and how we speak. In fact, Jesus said, Matthew 12, to the Pharisees and scribes, you brood of vipers. Now listen to this. You ever thought Jesus could get this tough? How can you speak good, let me translate, let me paraphrase, when your heart is evil, when you've not been born again? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure, there's thesaurus, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure cashes checks for evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. In other words, your words will prove your condition of your heart. And by your words, you will be condemned. If there is evil coming out, it's coming from an evil heart that has not yet been redeemed. Plead for grace and ask for salvation. If there is good coming out of your mouth, it's coming from a heart that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. Give grace, give honor, give glory to God because it's the work of the gospel. Haven't you ever heard a public figure say, After they got caught making a hateful or racist or sinful statement and they they say something like this, that's not really who I am, that was out of character for me. Listen, that is exactly who they are and it's exactly who we are when we say it. It's why Paul Tripp said in his book, War of Words, word problems reveal heart problems The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasion for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. So listen, disciples of Christ regularly get heart checkups. We go to our great physician and we examine our speech toward others. So how do we Christians discern our own hearts so that we can see others clearly. And let me give you a couple ways to do this, ready? Let's turn a little more practical. First one is this, you ready? Invite God to be your judge, and that is immediately frightening. But you gotta remember who your judge is. He loves you more than anybody ever will. So invite God to be your judge. I dare you to tomorrow morning, when you get up and you have your time with the Lord, which I hope you have every day, I dare you to to say to God these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, if God does not reveal the law jams in our hearts, we have no ability to ever see them. He's got to show them to us. And so invite him to do that. Be courageous and ask him to do that. And let me promise you one thing. God will take you up in your offer and he will use the anesthesia of grace to perform surgery in your heart. It will hurt, but it will feel so good because the logs begin to get taken out through confession. Well, let me give you another practical thing to do. Ask godly, trusted friends to speak into your life. Give them permission. Don't just wait for somebody to speak into your life because unless they're bold enough or confident enough that their friendship can sustain the truth, they're probably not gonna do it. You gotta invite, you gotta ask godly trusted friends to speak into your life. Now listen, the way you can get them to do that is by, in a trusting, gracious way, speak into their lives. Take the initiative. Let the power of redemptive relationships work on your heart. And if you're asked by someone to speak into their lives, be gracious, be gentle, be loving, be careful. Speak to them the way you want others to speak to you. Jesus just said it in his sermon. And remember, Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's amazing. When you speak into somebody's life, here comes a temptation that's almost the same into your life. You gotta be ready for it, anticipate it. Let me give you one more. Appeal to the power of the word of God. Listen, the word of God is living Inactive. If you want God to speak and to search and to take logs out of your heart to perform surgery by grace, if you want that, then you've got to be in His Word. I don't know anybody that's not in God's Word regularly and deeply who hears from God faithfully. You may be hearing what you think is from God, but I'm going to tell you that's not God because this is how He speaks. Can He speak through a a vision can he speak through an impression can he speak through an experience absolutely he can but it will always be the same as what he's already said in his word so appeal to the power of the word of god how do you do that well let me give you four steps in coming to the word of god on a daily basis that can work it's very very simple and if you can remember the acronym soap then you're going to remember this s is for scripture and you develop a regular time of reading God's Word. Listen, you've got to do that, Christian brother. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you've got to abide in His words continually. You've got to get deep into the Word of God and it will get deep into you. You develop that regular time, you read God's Word, you saturate your heart with the purity and the cleansing power of God's Word and you expect Him to speak into your heart. Listen, when you open up your Bible, do you honestly and truthfully expect and anticipate that God will speak to you? Not God might, or God, I hope you do, but by faith. God, this is your living and active word. It customizes truth for my exact need in this precise moment. You're about to speak, and I want to get ready for it. So, Listen, if you stay on the surface and you read 10 chapters every morning, or 10 chapters every night, it's usually not as helpful as going deep in a few verses. And when you read God's Word, God is speaking in a living way to us. He's not, he's not giving us a static, pre-written, one-size-fits-all Bible. It's one truth, but it's truth that speaks uniquely to the sins of my life, the hopes of my heart, the needs of my soul, and he speaks uniquely to yours as well. He will speak to you when you come to him with expectation. And it's here in Scripture in the S that we're asking God to speak to us. But then there's O, soap, you remember? O is for observation. We don't Read God's word as if it's a magic book and repeat its words as a mantra. We observe it. We think through it. We deliberate with the text. We study it more deeply, following its connecting trails to other verses and passages. Aren't you like me? Don't you start reading the Bible and then all of a sudden your curiosity says, yeah, I never I wonder where that word I I vaguely remember that word before and I wonder where that is and I find it and all of a sudden 20 minutes later I am so far afield from where I started yet I know now with more certainty the truth of that verse listen follow its connecting trails let it take you because it's got a life of its own it's living and active and here we're asking The Holy Spirit, teach us, reveal Jesus to me. Show me what it is you want me to know and transform my life. And then you get to A for application. SOAP is the acronym. And you read God's word. Supernaturally, God's word applies to us in every single area of your life. Listen, you will never encounter an area of your life that God does not have something to speak to from his word. He's always got everything you need from the power of his word. You come with faith. The word of God is amazing. It is infallible. It is without error in its original manuscripts. Listen, it can speak to everything you're going through. You come by faith to the word of God and you trust it. And it may be encouragement that you need or it may be a new revelation of a new promise that God is going to give to you from his word. It might be a correction. It may be instruction. Listen, whatever it is, transformation occurs in your heart when the truth of God's word renews your mind. It's got to get to your mind before it gets to your heart. Listen, there is no conduit to the heart through your emotions you got to remember that. If you want to know transform, the transforming power of the word of God, then the truth of God's word, it gets to your mind. Be not conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will so know God's good and perfect will. And here we are ready to immediately do what God reveals in his word. Listen, if God shows you something to his word, he wants you to live on it. He wants you to act on it. He wants you to respond to it. If he shows you a truth that he loves you completely, that he will never leave you or forsake you, then you've got to kill those thoughts where you think God is fed up with you because of your sins. And you've got to take truth by its hand and you've got to bring it into your mind and pray for the spirit of God and get it to your heart and transform you to be free in Christ. Listen, that's the power of the word of God, but you've gotta work hard in your relationship to realize it. And then you've got P, SOAP is the acronym. P, prayer is listening and speaking to God, and we're gonna hear more clearly and speak more dearly after our hearts have been saturated with God's word. Listen, George Mueller, one of the greatest saints in England, who rescued and grew and raised over 10,000 orphans. I guess he didn't really grow them like a Petri dish, but he raised over 10,000, 10,024 orphans to be exact. This is George Mueller, a man of God, never once asked anybody to give to his ministry. Just kept asking God, God, you know the needs. God, can you provide? God, will you bring what we need today? And God, without fail, did it. You know what George Mueller used to do early on in his ministry? He would get up four in the morning. Read his autobiography, you'll read it. Get up at four in the morning and he'd get right to his knees and begin praying. And you know what, guess what happened? George Mueller, like you and I, all of a sudden his mind began to wander. He began to think of all the things he had to do that day or the things that he didn't get done the day before. And he's like trying to wrestle his mind back to God. He'd be pleading with God, God, why can't I not focus for even 30 minutes without my mind wandering? And all of a sudden, George Mueller said, you know what? I'm praying for two hours and then reading the Bible for 15. I'm gonna reverse that. And I'm gonna study God's word and let the word of God saturate and grab my mind and take it captive. And then I'm gonna pray and all of a sudden his prayers were locked in like a laser on the merciful throne of God. Listen, if you're having trouble praying, then you're not probably in the word deeply enough. Get back to the word, it will take captive your mind and then get on your knees and speak back to the Lord. Prayer is listening and it's speaking to God. And prayer that's truly shaped by God's word. Listen, here's what the beauty of it is. It's going to find agreement with the heart of God every single time. Listen, if the word of God is shaping your prayer, yielding, it, yielding your will to the will of God through the power of God's word, there is nothing that you will ever ask from God and he will say no. You've already found agreement because of the power of the word of God. A transforming heart produces wholehearted living and makes an effective disciple maker. But there's one more bead in the Karaz of Christ's sermon, and we're going to look at that next. We've got to have an obedient heart. We've got to have an obedient heart. Can you do me a favor? Would you look back in verse 17 with me? I'm going to read it. Luke 6, verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now, who's with him? With a great crowd of his disciples and, so there's two groups, and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him. The second group came to hear him. You're going to hear that in a minute. Came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So there's two groups, a great group of disciples, a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people. And the great multitude of people, now look at me for a second, the great multitude of people, verse 18 we just saw it, they came to him to get saved from their hardships. They wanted to hear and they wanted to get. They wanted to hear, they wanted to be delivered. They wanted to be hearing him, but they wanted to be rescued and healed and swept up in this great big Roman rebellion or Jewish rebellion against Rome that they thought was coming. They're not interested in faithful obedience to Christ. They just want the thrill of being part of the crowd, of getting the blessings of what they thought might be the Messiah, but the Messiah to free Jews from rome's and that's not what the messiah came for and that group ranged from the curious to the the convinced from the fascinated to the faithful the doubters to the dedicated and he addresses them all in this sermon and look at verse 46 why do you now which group's he talking to the great crowd of disciples or the great multitude, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see who he's speaking to? He's not speaking to his great crowd of disciples, he's speaking to the great multitude who did not want him as their master, they wanted him as their benefactor. Listen, when the Bible says something twice, Lord, Lord, That is the Hebrew way of putting an exclamation point, an underline, bold italics, bold font. That's its way of saying emphatically, you got to listen. Truly, truly is another way they did it. So Jesus, when he says, Lord, Lord, he is saying something that is so overemphasized that it literally means dearest master. So let's read it again. Why do you call me dearest master and not do what I tell you? Here's what John Stott said on this point. The truth, you can see it on the screens, the truth on which Jesus is insisting is that neither an intellectual knowledge of him nor a verbal profession, though both are essential in themselves, can ever be a substitute for obedience. The question is not whether we say nice, polite words, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. Let me take all of what he said and sum it up into this. Do you really increasingly obey Jesus? Now, if you're like me, there are times in my life when I read a verse like this, and all of a sudden, I bet maybe some of you are experiencing this, all of a sudden an area of my life that I've not yet been willing to give over to Christ pops into the forefront of my thinking. Is that happening to you? Is there a sin in your life that you have not yet let go? Because honestly, quite frankly, brother and sister, you don't want to. It's not that you can't. You can do all things in Christ who strengthens you. You want that more than you want obedience. You want the pleasures of that more than you want the pleasures of the smile of God. That's the reality for a Christian. Or there may be something in your life that you possess and God's been telling you to give it up, give it to somebody who's needy, and you're saying, no, no, I'm not doing that, Lord. I don't think that's really you saying it. It's interesting how our minds can do that. Obedience is evidence that we have a new heart that's being powered by grace so that we can observe all that I commanded you, Matthew 28. Not all that I have counseled or suggested. But all that I have commanded, and to underscore this, Jesus shows us through three verbs. And again, let's be students of God's word. I'm going to teach you three verbs he uses in verse 47. Underline them if I were you in your Bibles. Everyone who comes, verb number one to me, and hears, verb number two, and does them, verb number three, comes, hears, and does, I will show you what he is like. He's about to give a parable. He's about to go into a narrative illustration of a person who comes to him, hears what he says, and puts them into action. But I've got to tell you something about those Greek verbs. And this is absolutely critical. They're all in an ongoing present tense, meaning this. Everyone coming to me and hearing my words and doing them Listen, that's as true tonight as it will be tomorrow morning when you go into the Word of God or next Saturday when you come here or next Sunday morning when you come here or when somebody logs on to a sermon online. When everyone who is coming to me, hearing my words, progressive truth, progressive growth, progressive maturity, and doing them, well, I'm going to show you what that person's life is like. And here it is. You're the true disciple verse 47 everyone who comes to me let me reread it everyone who is coming to me hearing my words and doing them i will show you what he is like he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when a flood arose a stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built see a well-built house that lays the foundation on the rock, listen, it's the one who comes to Christ, hears Christ speak through his word and puts it into action and obedience. That's a well-built house and the house is being built onto it. Additions are being made as you mature in Christ, as you keep coming, hearing, and doing. And that person can withstand the storms of life, which brings floods against them. Listen, the problem was, In the land of Israel, they had two rainy seasons. They had the fall rains, spring rains, which were called the former rains and the latter rains. Joel speaks about the latter rains as being the spirit of God coming down before Christ comes back. But listen, those floods would come And when those floods would come onto that dry, hard-baked ground, the ground could not absorb it. The wadis would fill instantly from the flood. The creeks would fill to overflowing. And all of a sudden, that flood would come against the house. And if you weren't built on a foundation of rock, you're going to do what we've seen in New Orleans in the Ninth precinct. It's going to sweep the house miles away. We've seen houses where that happened. Floods are common to humanity, but the context of the sermon is this. Listen, it's persecution. This whole sermon's about persecution. Persecution that's going to come against the disciples who are true disciples who are following Christ. But when we are faithfully coming to Christ, trusting in him, hearing his word deeper and deeper and obeying what he tells us, we will be able to withstand those floods. But then there's another group. These are the self-deceived disciples. They think they're disciples. They're part of the church. They come regularly. They even own a Bible or two. But look what they do, verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man. So they're hearing, they're at church, they're worshiping, they look in the Bible, but they're not doing them. And they're like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, and when those floods come, they pick the house right up and slide it right away to be demolished. See, to build without a foundation is simply this. You hear God speak to you through his word, or through a sermon, or through a friend, but you do not obey what God says. The true disciple comes, hears, and obeys, but the self-deceived hears, but does not obey. Listen, look at your Bible. Look at this sermon. This is the hypocrite of verse 42. This is the blind man of verse 39. This is the rich man of verse 24. This is the satisfied of verse 25. This is the famous who has spoken well of in verse 26. This is the self-deceived who's running after the world and not running after Christ. You claim to be my disciples, but nothing will reveal the truth faster than a flood of persecution. See, Jesus was warning the groups following him if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That word abide means to come here and do. Come here and do. Verse 49, when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. You ever notice that word, immediately? It didn't stand strong for a while. Immediately it fell, and such is our own strength without Christ. Friends, our faith must produce obedience. And Christ must be the Lord, and we must, by his grace, learn to obey him. How? How? Well, getting into his word, letting the power of his gospel take the logs out of her eyes so that more light comes in We can see ourselves clearly discerning good and evil, give glory to the good and plead for grace for the evil and see others more clearly with a wholehearted love and an obedient love that says, nothing is more important to me than coming to God and hearing him and immediately putting it into action because why would I not? Because any other recourse is to my own destruction. You have a persuasive love to love even those who have ill will against you? Do you have a love love that's full of mercy, refusing to judge other people? Do you have a discerning love that sees your heart accurately and sees others accurately because you've seen your own sins and by grace you're getting them out of your eyes? Do you have a love that's wholehearted, producing the fruit of righteousness? And do you have a love that's obedient, gladly submitting to Christ your Lord? Listen, plead for more grace. More of our Savior's help to grow in love, for love is what makes discipleship the greatest job on earth. It will make it effective. Soap. You want to practice that immediately? Put that into effect in your life? And watch your heart transform. Transform. And like that man from Wales, it can be instantaneous or it could be a while, but it will transform because nothing could be an obstacle to the power of the gospel. Have faith and trust in him. Amen.